The big time stuff that I wish I had. The big time stuff that'll make you mad. The big time stuff. I like the big time stuff. Welcome to the Chris Idell and Neil Modi podcast, where we explore life, happiness, and uh, tough questions about uh, being an investor. We just kind of explore and have a good time. That was fantastic. <laughs> so we always try and laugh. We always try and have a good time. <laughs> so our guest today is Joshua, and he's the author of a new book called Prediction Machines by Harvard Business Review Press brand new uh, and out in bookstores and, of course, on the infamous Amazon right now. He explores the economics of artificial intelligence in a way that I think is deeply understandable for all of us. So we can't wait to bring in Joshua and learn from him. I have Joshua with us. Joshua, this is Christopher Heidel. Good day, sir. Good day to you, too. Joshua, um, before we get started, because not all of our audience um, is into data science or machine learning or artificial intelligence, do you mind sharing a little bit of the difference between those three topics as a place of of jumping off for us? Yes, certainly. Uh, There's actually surprisingly little difference between them. You normally think of, you know, robots and, and, uh, you know, the Terminator or or Wally, or something like that. Uh, but actually, that's you know, that's the that's the, that's the future. Uh, that's not the artificial intelligence of today. The artificial intelligence today, based on machine learning, as you say, uh, is actually very closely related to data science and statistics. Uh, it is not very exciting to write a book saying, "Hey, look at this. There's a new statistical method, and it's going to revolutionise the world." Uh, it just doesn't uh, get that way. But, but you know, sadly, uh, that is actually the case. It's a very good new statistical uh, method that comes from machine learning, but it, it is just that. In other words, it can, it can do no more than do better statistics. And that's, so there's really no real difference between them. <laughs> it's clear you haven't been uh, brought up in Silicon Valley. I think I get a very different answer from a lot of startups there. That's, <laughs> that's an avenue. Uh, you know, I, 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 we are keenly aware of this. I've been through this. I went through this 20 years ago when they said it was a completely new economy with the Internet. And the economists looked at each other and said, no, it's not. It's just that the cost of something has gone down. You know, all of these new developments, on the contrary, for the last four years of the Creative Destruction Lab, as you know, we've been with literally, literally hundreds of startups in the uh, AI machine learning space. But all of them, what they're doing is still just applying this new statistical method. What inspired you to write this and what makes such a simple, uh, straightforward proposal so very exciting for you? Well, you know, uh, uh, you know, statistics has a you know a connotation amongst people, but you know, in my little tribe, uh, statistics and being better at it is uh, there's a lot of power to it. And in particular, this one uh, is able to deal with the extremely large data sets that are being made available thanks to digitization and to the proliferation of sensors and all sorts of things like that. 
And uh, that is why it is particularly exciting. But what you have now is you have the computational power combined with very large data sets that are not only large, but they're very rich in terms of, I guess, the breadth of experience that they cover. And what these new methods allow you to do is they can get you the stuff that you got before. Yeah, the, you know, in the summer, the, the temperatures are going to be hotter. But they can get you far more nuanced. Uh, that are the sort of things that allow Google, for instance, to, to locate the best websites for very obscure searches or allow you to be able to uh, take a car into very diverse environments now and have it drive itself. Uh, so that's the bit that's exciting. It's, it's one of these things. These come along or, or every so often, new technological advances. We got that with computers when addition and arithmetic became cheap because of computers. That doesn't sound the most exciting use of computers, but that's basically all they do. And with machine learning, it's all about prediction. Predictions getting faster, better, cheaper. And there just turns out to be a lot of applications of that. There's typically a lot of noise. Um, yeah. A lot of hype. And so right. we get a sober answer. We're almost not sure what to do. We're like, wow. It comes to an economist to pour water on the hype. That's what we do. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> our job. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's, uh, by the way, it might surprise you, there's a market for that. <laughs> because really, uh, the, reason, <laughs> the reason we wrote this book is because, uh, you know, people outside of Silicon Valley we're looking at this stuff and they're saying, you know, I don't know what to make of it. I don't know how to fit it into my worldview to even know if I should, you know, some, some, some CEO or some board's going and saying, oh, I've heard all about this AI, go buy me stuff, right? <laughs> you know, and, 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 and the rest of management says, what does that mean? Okay, what should they be buying? Because the applications that are, uh, are making the news aren't, you know, obviously related to their business. And so basically, by grounding it in this thing that it's all about prediction, we can sound to managers, look, if you want to adopt AI, first of all, find a situation where you've got a lot of uncertainty, frame it as a prediction problem, and then see if you can make use of that prediction. And the book, in the middle part of the book, which is, you know, in many respects, it's drive part, we have found time and time again that the leaguered manager has found a very, very useful to simply go through that exercise. It's made them see where AI might be possible, where they have to collect data and so on. And it's a pedestrian activity in some sense, but it's an extremely useful one. You know, I, one of the things I'm curious about is how, you know, I want to say common middle America is going to be able to use uh, this, this ability to be more predictive. I understand how they use Google now. Thinking it through, we can just search and Google gives us an answer or a context of answers. What do you think will change for uh, for uh, the folks who aren't, you know, in the middle of AI, ML, all of that kind of thing? You know, I think the hope is that they won't, you know, like a lot of aspects of digital technology and things like that, it'll come in, it'll improve lives. You know, it's very easy to sort of like when you're talking to Alexa or something like that to think of it as AI and it's getting built to you as that. Although the frustrations are with it, is, is, of course, is not really intelligent and people can work that out very uh, quickly. Uh, in, in other situations, it'll just be products that work better. You know, when you put in a thermostat 
that takes into account weather and other things like that, your house will just be at the right temperature. You'll be able to use some apps to take a picture of a mole and see whether you should go in and, and visit the doctor. You won't be going and, and saying to yourself, well, there's some whiz-bang, uh, you know, doctor replacement inside my phone. Uh, you'll just see it as an app that works better. And so I think you, this is how uh, people are going to feel the experience of AI uh, is not necessarily calling it AI, but just calling it a better product. So, so at the risk of, of trying to get a hyperbolic statement out of an economist, <laughs> just try and add the hype back into it. What do you think the hardest problems that AI is going to solve uh, look like? Do you have any predictions? I would say, well, you know, this AI is all about uh, better predictions itself. And so what happens when you dial that up? You know, from zero where it might be now to, you know, to 11 to, to, to think about, uh, spinal tap. <laughs> you, uh, basically, uh, basically what you get is you might get some really profound changes. For instance, what if Amazon knew so much about my demands that instead of me shopping and then shipping, it instead decided just to ship stuff to my door? And I'd come home and they'd be like this, crate sitting there, how does it know that I needed uh, more dental floss, right, <laughs> and stuff like that. And I could just mm-hmm. pick it all out and send the rest back to Amazon. Now, if they, they can't do that now because it's just, you know, most of the stuff they sent to me I wouldn't have any interest in. But if all of a sudden they're sending stuff to me and I'm taking, you know, 90% of it, well, that becomes worthwhile. It might become so worthwhile they don't mind me just taking the, the extra 10% saying I don't want it and trying it out. I mean, so you can imagine, you know, when you sort of think about where prediction can help, you think of things like that. Let me think, let me give you another example. In the world of fashion, uh, you know, what's the, what, what do clothes makers do? Clothes makers make things they think we want to buy and in some cases try to work out in a pure old John Kenneth Galbraith style manipulate our preferences so we want to buy it, but they end up not selling most of it. <laughs> you know, most of the clothes that get made just simply do not get <laughs> get sold at all. You know, if they were able to better align the preferences and better predict that out, uh, we may be able to get rid of that entire set of waste that is clearly going on and what they're going to wear. And one can imagine with enough data. Uh, a prediction machine being able to fundamentally change that problem. I just want to paraphrase all of that. At some point, Amazon's going to understand every time you want 10 new pairs of crocodile shoes and uh, yes. talk to Gucci and make sure they're made just for you. Well, something along those lines. <laughs> I mean, let's start. We're probably going to start a, a bit more mundane and they're going to get very good at <laughs> my underwear. You know, <laughs> uh, they might get very good at forecasting when you need a new pair of running shoes or something like that, right? Uh, and be able to sort of satisfy that. Now, getting it into true, unique fashion and all that sort of stuff, who the hell knows? Uh, as I said, that's why I try not to make predictions. But I'm trying to give you a sense of the sort of thing that might change. Right. Well, you see right. a, a bunch of things that is clearly wasteful. That, are, In other words, people are throwing things out at the market some of it's sticking, some of it isn't. The question that we sh- should ask ourselves is, can a prediction machine 
with enough data, eventually mitigate that entire set of waste. And that's really the exercise that we should go through. And, Joshua, will people accept it? I mean, I remember a more primitive experiment with Target, of course, offers for, you know, discounted diapers to women who they knew by their mothers were pregnant. Yes. And there was a reaction. And then, again, recently uh, with Google unveiling their digital assistant that uh, was so human-like, there was a a bit of a backlash. And they came back and said, well, we'll have a disclosure. That this is a robot, it's not a real. <laughs> yeah, no, I, really I, I don't think that's going to be enough either. I mean, that's a disaster, right? Yeah, no, no. I look, I, what we what we're going to accept and not accept that's always a difficult thing. You know, twenty years ago, I saw the Segway, and I thought twenty years, you know, now would what was it, fifteen years ago, whatever it was, the Segway. I thought we'd be driving around on that all the time. It was seemed so great. And it didn't work out. And I, and I, and it didn't work out. And the reason it didn't work out is not because it didn't work. Not because it didn't do exactly what they said it was doing. Uh, but maybe because people didn't want to drive around looking like a dick or something like that. You know, and the same thing could happen for some of these things. They are, you know, there's this, you know, the creepiness factor. Um, you know, but people get used to it. I mean, you get used to targeted ads. You say, how did it know? Blah, 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 blah. But then you realize that, you know, if you turn off the targeted ads, you just get random ads, and that's kind of worse. So it's, uh, it's very hard to forecast how people are going to be accepting of this. Um, you know, there was a time when people were very, uh, you know, right at the beginning of smartphones, oh, people won't accept that because it'll, you know, disrupt social situations. Well, it doesn't seem to have stopped it. I mean, even though people whine, it doesn't seem to have stopped it. So, you know, I suspect we'll have some of that thing, uh, we'll have that occur. Um, but we're, that's one of the things that is hard, very hard to predict or forecast. I remember the great quote from Richard Feynman. He said, imagine how hard physics would be if atoms had feelings. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Yeah. No, so we're going to have those, you know, those, those are going to be constraints. But, you know, the, the thing they talk about with the target when the uh, 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 coupons were going out to the, uh, that they predicted somebody was pregnant accurately, as it turned out, uh, but their father <laughs> wondered what's going on here. Um, uh, they just say, you know, for all we know, they sold so many more diapers, it wasn't funny because most of the people they sent it out to were pregnant and everybody around them knew it. And so it just turned out to be a good marketing strategy. So, you know, it's like, it's, 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 not, it's not clear which way we're going to end up with all of that, even if Target had to back off that particular one because of some bad publicity. Right, right, right. Do you think that sports are going to become less interesting to watch with, you know, the rise of more – is that a company that predicted the Patriots would win unanimous? They, they predicted yeah. they'd win by a touchdown. Um, <laughs> they predicted uh, – I think they even predicted Trump, right? Is is watching the news, is watching sports going to be less interesting than it was before? Are we just going to tune yeah. into our AI predictor and say, oh, Liverpool is going to lose uh, against Manchester United? Or, uh, well, you know, uh, LeBron James is going to lose that first game? He's going to come back the second one. Look, it'll be interesting, but the beautiful thing about this, it's not static. You know, even if tomorrow we, uh, someone invented an AI and could tell you exactly what the profile of every team was going to win and whatever margin, the teams would then look at that and they would change their behavior. Because <laughs> they would right. then use the right. forecast. And so the, the right. thing that causes the forecast to become 
uh, unreliable or unstable is because there is, you know, with the Adam Fab feelings, because there are people involved and people react to it. You know, the, 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 the great uh, uh, AI in the sky will take care of that and will predict the humans perfectly as well. You know, obviously that is a conceptually possible thing, but we're not going to see anything like that anytime soon because it has to obey the law of statistics. The AI, the machine learning doesn't mean they can think. All it can mean that they have to use the data they have at hand. Now, if they had some quantum computer that could simulate people and, and forecast things that way, that would be very interesting, but we're not there yet. Do you want to predict when we will be? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, have, we have massive disagreement amongst our three, the three colors. Uh, <laughs> Joshua, so you've been enmeshed in this world um, through CDL, and what um, stands out as the most counterintuitive thing that you've uh, learned? Oh, I see. I see. Uh, 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 no, I, I'll give you one example that was a. Uh, Surprising. One of these AI startups, um, uh, you know, decided to serve supermarkets and to bring machine learning into supermarkets. And they were dealing with a, a large uh, supermarket chain here in Canada, and they were looking at their cold chain. So basically, the you know, uh, when you take something like yogurt uh, and you have to decide how much yogurt are you going to stock in a particular store. Uh, because you don't want to, you don't want to run out of yogurt, obviously, nor do you want to have too much left over because it's, it's perishable. And they, uh, you know, we expect there's all sorts of determinants of that, but they, they ran, you know, your standard machine learning algorithms on data of previous sales of yogurt with some other variables, uh, from around economy and environment. And they discovered that one of the main determinants of the demand for yogurt was temperature. Now, what what they're not saying is, okay, in the summer, people buy more yogurt than in the winter. That was already known. But what they did find is that if all of a sudden, the, you know, the temperature, uh, you know, was, was five degrees uh, warmer, even in the dead of winter, that would cause people to buy more yogurt. So it's not a, you know, seasonal thing. It's just that, oh, it seems a bit warmer today. Uh, maybe I'll have some yogurt. Uh, it's a relative factor. And in fact, it turned out the temperature and daily change in the temperature was the biggest driver of, uh, you know, the error rate in uh, matching supply and demand for yogurt. Um, so that's the kind of thing that I always get, I, I find quite surprising uh, when those sorts of things come up. It's literally a new discovery in some sense. I mean, and they, you know, they had to work and think, why is this going on? And, you know, you couldn't use the black box of AI, you had to understand it a bit better. And, and I, I find it quite fascinating when uh, AI sort of discover things, uh, they discover different modes. And you sometimes see this with uh, AI called reinforcement learning that basically runs simulations and, uh, uh, you know, uh, in simulated environments. And they, you know, I saw one recently where they gave an, uh, you know, a simulated spider uh, learning to walk and uh, use some some basic rewards to get the simulated spider to walk. And then they said, okay, now walk and only let seven touch the ground. <laughs> Make sure one of them always stays up. And they kept on doing it all the way down to getting to zero legs. Now you think to yourself, oh, what's it going to do now with zero legs? Well, it turned out it flipped itself over and went on its back and was able to, you know, the way the shape was, it was able to move on its back. 
So you can imagine in some complicated simulations what an AI might be able to discover. And it's a bit like these ones where you see these AIs design these very strong materials and it looks like some sort of spider webbing type cocoon thing <laughs> that used to be a sheet of metal but now is a, you know, a sort of a reinforced uh, different a strange nature-like design. Well, that's the kind of thing that you can you can discover. Complicated interactions that nobody could get their head around, but somehow that the AIs, who is basic basically being able to do statistics on steroids, is able to discover it. Joshua, this is blowing my mind. Though <laughs> you started out um, underwhelmingly telling us that this is basically statistics. But now it's broaching in my mind on the imagination. <laughs> it's just, all you've learned is statistics is great. Statistics is great. That's all you've learned. <laughs> right. right. Maybe I'm just confused about imagination. I'm not, I'm not, letting, anyone, I'm not letting anyone leave this podcast on a high. No. <laughs> A dismal scientist, for sure. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, maybe my, I've always thought the investments that I missed, which are the ones often most painful um, in some ways, um, were due to a failure of imagination. I just need bigger data sets, though, right? Exactly. Exactly. That's what you need. <laughs> Bigger data sets. I mean, I, I mean, uh, you can also have an economist that can stop you investing all together. <laughs> Believe me, I've suffered that myself as a an economics major. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wait. So you you also teach business. What, I mean, what do you see as the teach us? You're a professor. You you, you teach business and you study economics yeah. and teach economics. Um, teach us what what do us lay business investing <laughs> folks need to know. <laughs> so actually, I, actually, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I'm usual for an economist, but uh, not on AI. I have an article in uh, the most recent Harvard Business Review on st strategy for startups. Well, we're actually quite critical of some of the approaches that you know economists and also my business colleagues take for trying to invest in startups because startups are surrounded by a great deal of uncertainty, as you well know. Uh, and the, you know, the reaction to that uncertainty, so, so business school professors tend to come up and say, and you find the optimal strategy and you, you, you then can confidently go ahead and, and, uh, tackle that uncertainty knowing you've chosen the best path. Um, and that gets contrasted with basically entrepreneurs, uh, going and sort of reflecting and saying, there was a lot of uncertainty. Uh, you know, if I'd spent time pussyfooting around and trying to work out what the best thing to do is, I would have missed this opportunity. So what really worked was me just getting on and doing it. You know, the way I see it is sort of somewhere in between those two. Is, you know, obviously, if you think through some stuff, you can discard bad ideas uh, and work out ideas that just, uh, you know, aren't going to aren't going to be feasible. I've, I've had numerous students come in and say, you know, to me, oh, there's this great new platform being developed and just moved from Australia to the United States and we want to bring it to Canada. That's going to be our startup plan. And then I say, well, what's going to stop this, uh, you know, suppose you succeed, what's going to stop this firm that has all this uh, experience in the United States just switching on the Canadian app and doing the same thing? And, and they say, well, nothing. Uh, <laughs> and I say, well, don't you think that's a problem? 
So, you know, you can discard bad ideas that way. But at the same, uh, you know, and so you'll do that, but you'll eventually get to a point at which you've got a couple of options of how to pursue an idea, uh, and you'll just have to go with your gut, effectively, and choose. Uh, you can't just, you know, no more analysis is going to get you any better ranking, and it's going to turn out you've probably got some things you've seen or some mentor has told you that pushes you one way or the other. Uh, and, and, and so, in other words, you have to sort of earn your right to sort of choose, uh, but then you have to accept that you'll choose. And in fact, if you ever did this process of eliminating all the bad ideas, you just came out and said, for this idea that I've got, there's only one strategy to pursue. I've got to pursue this strategy. Chances are that's telling you it's a bad idea. Because if you have to thread the needle that there's only one path to profitability with this idea, it's probably a bad idea. So there's some real merit to going through and finding a, a few options and coming down and, and saying, yeah, I've got a few options, but they both look good. I'll just have to choose one. So that's my kind of philosophy on that. And I do, you know, I've seen a lot of startups now, and it's a very useful exercise in saying to them, and think about alternative different strategies as far as, as much as possible of how you could take that to market. It can really, really open up the choices of customers that they never saw previously, uh, technologies that they never thought of bringing in, how they felt about competition, and whether their whole firm is like got the capabilities to, to succeed. Um, what do you think you'll end up doing with this? I don't know. It's not maybe newer knowledge because it's just more statistics, um, but also with your startup strategy thought. Like, how do you actually? Um, my, my thought is what you're doing is fairly noble in teaching and maybe even more scholarly in studying. But um, yeah. you seem like a guy who's going to apply these things to the world. At the moment, we sort of do it in the typical academic way of, uh, you know, writing books and hoping people will read them. I mean, I find that the Creative Destruction Lab itself, uh, you know, is a fairly unique um, uh, proposition, uh, and it's now now spreading as well, uh, where basically these things can be applied. I can also go through, you know, those same startups uh, or a broader set of them and apply, uh, you know, these principles of, for want of a better term, entrepreneurial strategy to do it, you know, like say, what are your choices of customer? What are your choices of technology here? What is really the core idea that you've, you've brought to the world here? And, and what are the different ways of commercializing it? And it turns out, you know, just having a process liberating for some of these firms. I mean, I watched a firm that was uh, out of Harvard, came through the Creative Destruction Lab, uh, was able to uh, uh, analyze uh, certain chemicals for their purity. And they for some reason, they came into the lab and it was all about cosmetics, that they were just going to be able to analyze cosmetics, cosmetic properties, and that was going to be very useful to L'Oreal or something like that. Um, that firm, with that same technology, the same scientific insight, they ended up going up north and um, they're using that same techniques to analyze the purity of uh, oil uh, pipelines and hazardous waste and things like that. <laughs> you can't think of something so far apart in terms of markets and cosmetics all the way to, to oil, but that's exactly what happened there. And that's, you know, basically, and that turned out to be a much better and more lucrative uh, thing because there's just, you know, the quantities of oil are much bigger than the quantities of perfume or something <laughs> in the world. <laughs> 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 
Yeah, exactly. The vanity just... usually trumps everything. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, so this is a company called Valadia, and, and it's, you know, it's quite fascinating to see these, you know, these companies, you know, come into the lab and say, I'm in cosmetics, and all and walk out and say, I'm in the oil business. I mean, that's like, you know, that's, it, it's seemingly crazy than what they were bringing in terms of their, you know, their core science, which was basically, a, a, you know, a machine learning with chemicals, uh, <laughs> you know, th- then you can see why, how that path occurred. Neil Modi, that sounds like it's right up your alley, something you would uh, have decided or helped them help to guide people to alternative uses. Yeah. Some, yeah, no, it's uh, something I think about, obviously, a lot with uh, the way we look at IP quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, oftentimes people don't understand what they invented. So it sounds like AI yeah. can help. It sounds like AI could help replace me. That's, I mean, that's what I'm learning today, Chris. <laughs> yeah, that would be an interesting <laughs> thing. Right? Yeah, the, you know, it's possible, I guess. <laughs> I, I actually find that actually, uh, you know, people who've been there and done that, and this is the other thing that I, I get from the uh, Creative Destruction Lab. I mean, you know, I as an academic come from a certain, uh, and, you know, I, I must admit, I thought, oh, well, I'll be able to predict which startups are going to be successful as they come in. And I was invariably incorrect. Uh, and I found that the ability of people who had scaled companies themselves and things like that to look at a founder and say, you know, whether they've really got what it takes to do this entire job, uh, you know, is a skill that I don't know. Maybe an AI will be able to to copy what those people do. And I, I you know, I doubt it any, any time soon. That is a sure... This, this just sounds like a statistic problem. That's what I hear. Well, no, I mean, conceptually, I agree with you, conceptually. <laughs> but, you know, you still... I just, even, even at the moment, you really have to have some very, very, very um, data-rich AIs have it following somebody around for, you know, a couple of decades. Very interesting, very interesting. I, I, I feel like no matter what happens, we need to do a revisit to the same podcast a year from now or six months oh, from now fine. to see yeah, what yeah, your yeah. newest insights are going to be. Do you think you guys are going to write another book um, focused on uh, statistics or, or artificial well, intelligence, as well, let's call it? Well, you know, at, at the moment, our uh, book is Prediction Machines, the Simple Economics of uh, Artificial Intelligence. Well, there is a complicated economics, which is all about what we've done at the moment is done more or less the engineering thing, saying this stuff exists, it can improve things. But thinking about how it will modify human behavior and how it will interact with, with that is, uh, is a, a more difficult economic challenge, and that would probably be uh, the next thing we would do. You, did you ever read the book uh, Murder on the Margin? Uh, yes, yes, I did many years ago. I feel like this conversation reminds me a little of that. In uh, I, might, I must have told you about this book. These two economists solve murder. Yes. Yeah, serve a murder mystery using economic principles, and I, I could almost you know hear the the wheels in your head turning, Chris, as as he's talking, and certainly hear the wheels in his head turning as he's sharing <laughs> that the two of the two guys could solve a murder mystery together. <laughs> uh, I have, I have, you know, I occasionally get these agents from from LA ring up and say, who who's to, who owns the movie and TV rights to Parentonomics? And I wonder what they have in mind. You know, the economic economics professor that solves crimes <laughs> while bringing up kids sounds like a great great premise for a <laughs> <laughs> 
do you think that uh, our governments are going to start to have, you know, AI uh, technology policy offices, or, or maybe as you might call it, oh. holistic policy offices? Um, <laughs> no, no, I'm sure it would be AI. In, in the next uh, four <laughs> to six years, are we going to see that? I, I, I think so. I think we're going to see it. I mean, we already see some very big government programs. I mean, China in particular is investing many billions uh, as, as they can do in, uh, you know, trying to be the best in AI and things like that. In other places like France, uh, they're trying to get AI policies to sort of, you know, craft regulations so that they're all involved in, the, in you know, the so-called right way. Um, I, and, you know, there's one country, um, I think the United Arab Emirates has a minister for AI already. So there are countries thinking about it. And, and you can always go to Estonia to look at, like, what the digital future looks like. And I suspect that they will have, have AI capabilities very soon as well. Um, how this will impact on policy and government is anyone's guess. I have no doubts at all that there are deep AI arms and deep advances going on in defense and security and things like that. Uh, it's just that we don't hear about it. I, I'm out of questions, Chris, actually. I really enjoyed the conversation, Joshua. You had, you had me thinking a little differently about the world, and when that can happen, I'm really grateful. No worries. I'm going to enjoy this, too. This has been fun. Yeah, it's been wonderful to meet you um, in this context and to learn about your work and um, your challenges <laughs> and the way uh, you think about this, and <laughs> especially with the gloss and the varnish removed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> remove the varnish. <laughs> that's right. I really enjoyed the time with you. This is the most we've laughed and amongst the most sober conversation we've had on this podcast of episode number 17 or something here. So thank All you right. very much. No worries. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you, guys. Okay. Right. Bye. Bye-bye. Hey, Google. What's the best book for artificial intelligence and business? Alexa, what's the best book on artificial intelligence and business? Hey, Siri. What's the best book on artificial intelligence and business? Sorry. I can't help with that yet. The jury's still out on that one. Okay, searching iBooks for artificial intelligence and business. That's better. Prediction Machines, the simple economics of artificial intelligence. Out now on Amazon, Google, and of course iBooks. PredictionMachines.ai. The best book for artificial intelligence and business.